The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest back to Food Sleuth Radio, Dr. Frederick Vomsall. He is the Curator's Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Biological Sciences at the University of Missouri. He has received numerous honors and awards, including the Environmental Health Hero Award from the Clean Med Association, the Heinz Foundation Award in Environmental Science, and he is the author of a brand new book, Integrative Environmental Medicine. It's published by Oxford University Press. It's part of the Weill Integrative Medicine Library, and I think it is essential reading for anyone who cares about their health and the environment in which we live. Dr. Vamsal has been our guest before, talking about what he's probably most famous for, and that is his research on bisphenol A, or BPA. And he's also a co-author of an article titled, Is it Time to Reassess Current Safety Standards for Glyphosate-Based Herbicides? We have lots to cover. Welcome, Dr. Vamsal. It's a pleasure to be here, Melinda. This is a fabulous book, and when I found out that it was being published, I, of course, had to get a copy and went through it. I think I emailed you and said I feel like a kid in a candy store because this is all of the subject matter that I find to be so fascinating and important for future generations. So I want to know a little bit about you first. I want our listeners to know, how did you become interested in environmental contaminants? Well, we stumbled into, as you mentioned, the chemical BPA back in the mid-1990s, and we were studying the effects of estrogens as damaging to fetal development and decided to test chemicals that were known estrogenic drugs. And astounding fact is that BPA in 1936, was considered to be used as a fertility drug because it has 100% of the efficacy of estrogens produced by the ovaries or in males as well. And so we stumbled into the fact that EPA was 25,000 times more potent than the FDA or the EPA had considered based on their estimates using essentially 19th century testing methods. And when we published that, the first thing that happened is Dow Chemical tried to bribe me to withdraw the publication before it appeared. Back in those days, they didn't go online automatically. And we, my colleagues like really, really mad. So we're going to find out what's going on here. And so I've spent the last 25 years or so, working on BPA and other endocrine disruptors. And glyphosate, the chemical in Roundup, is just one of the more current chemicals that we're working on. We've worked on other plastic additives, such as phthalates. I've worked on other pesticides, such as methoxychlor and PDT. So this is 
consumed my life, basically transformed me from a basic endocrinologist to an endocrine toxicologist. Mm -hmm. And those two disciplines didn't really interact in the way they do today at the time I got into this. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because as a dietitian, I really didn't study any of these kinds of toxins in our environment during my education. And it was really through your work and the work of others that my eyes were opened And now I, too, am fascinated by the effects of these chemicals in our food system and our water. And it, too, has taken over the focus of my work. So nutrition is the door through which I enter this world of what exactly is lurking in our food. And I thought it was very interesting in the foreword of integrative environmental medicine. There is a comment about how It's remarkable that we have not been connecting the dots. So with regard to integrative medicine, which is healing-oriented medicine that takes account the whole person and the environment in which we live, and it embraces the precautionary principle. And yet still today, when we look at how we approach diseases, we are not focused on the environment. We don't look at it. And I don't understand why we are not more open to it. Well, one of the problems is that the public out there doesn't know the details, and they typically are going to go to a physician and say, can you tell me about this? And one of the huge problems we face is that in virtually no medical school in the United States is there a environmental health curriculum component to medical education. And this is a huge problem in that the medical community is by and large completely uninformed and unable to respond to queries from patients other than to say, well, I don't know of any harm. And it's the ultimate violation that the absence of evidence of harm in a person's mind is taken as evidence that there is no harm. Mm -hmm. And this is a classic flawed thinking that patients are hearing from their physicians because the physicians are uninformed about these issues. And it's why we wrote this book. And your audience, I thought, was interesting. You've targeted physicians as well as their patients. And so when I looked at this book, I looked at it through the patient's lens, the consumer's lens. And there are some chapters that are for individuals who might have more of a scientific background than others. The chapter, for example, on epigenetics, I think, is fairly rigorous. But many of the other chapters, I mean, they start out with key concepts. They give people some information on where to go with this knowledge, what to do, both on a personal level as well as on a political one, a policy one, which I think is is critical. So why don't we dive into some of these chapters a little bit and talk about, let's talk about food, of course, because that's really of course, at the heart of my work. But I love the chapter on food additives because 
There's discussion of direct additives. These are the things that we tell consumers to look for on the label, for example. And then there are indirect additives. Let's talk about indirect additives. What are they? So EPA is an indirect additive. It is not added to food. For instance, salt would be a direct additive. And other things that are directly added to enhance the shelf life or the flavoring of the food. But BPA is a component of the lining of cans, and it is a chemical that polycarbonate containers that GURBS, for instance, puts its baby food in. And this is a chemical that migrates out of the plastic that lines cans and that contains food or beverages. So when you consume food or beverages from these containers, any canned product, any canned product, you are going to get a dose of a chemical that in the 1930s was considered for use as an estrogen fertility drug. And in the 1950s, was made into plastic by organic chemists that didn't understand that this is a drug. And in the 1960s, the way the laws read is that if a chemical was in existence before 1958, then it was automatically determined to be safe with no evidence of whether it was or not safe. And, of course, now there are thousands of publications showing it's harmful. But the government, because it was under generally regarded as safe, has no regulatory authority over this chemical. Mm -hmm. And it's one of an estimated 10,000 chemicals that are in processed food that the great majority of Americans are living on. Mm -hmm. I went to an interesting conference a couple of years ago. It was the Children's Environmental Health Network Conference. And there was a woman there who was also studying BPA in school food. And she found that because so much of the food comes out of cans, those indirect additives migrating from the can, as you describe, as well as plastic utensils and trays, she found that children that ate a lot of their meals or large proportion of their food intake came from schools actually had higher blood levels of BPA. Oh, now I'm going to tell you something that is just absolutely incomprehensible about our regulatory system and our political system. In the late 1990s in Japan, what you just told me became public and the Japanese can manufacturers and the manufacturers of plasticware changed the production of those products so that they were no longer releasing BPA and phthalates into food and beverages. That was about 20 years ago, and the official position of the American Can Manufacturing Association is that there is no known replacement for BPA lining of cans and the use of BPA in these products. When the Japanese 
changed that and came up with an alternative about 20 years ago. Wow. And the FDA allows these chemicals to remain in products and does nothing about it. Mm-hmm. It's really horrifying. It is. And from what I understand, the replacements, you know, if we go to the grocery store and we look for containers, I always buy sardines because I'm looking for omega-3 fatty acid sources. And it was interesting because I read in your book, there's a chapter that looks at where we find some of these environmental chemicals. And I realized, oh, sardines actually may not be so great. Good for omega-3s, but maybe not so good because where the fish live may be in shallow waters with effluents that may be contaminated. But that's another part of the story. But anyway, in the cans of sardines that I had been buying, it says on them, BPA-free. And then I learned that some of the replacements for BPA still have estrogenic activity. So what's a consumer to do? Well, in the United States, the majority of chemicals that are put into food are put into food without any oversight that these indirect additives we're talking about that are declared by industry to not really matter. And all they have to do is make that declaration and they can put them into food with no regulatory oversight. There's this gaping hole in the legislation that was written in 1958 that allowed generally regarded as safe products to be put into food. So what you're talking about is the fact that these new chemicals that are essentially structurally identical to BPA, and BPA is being replaced by EPS and BPF that have slight chemical modifications, and now there's evidence that they are at least as bad and possibly worse than BPA. And they are now being referred to as regrettable substitutions. And it's because our regulatory system in the United States, unlike in Europe, for instance, has no ability to test replacement chemicals before they are put into products. They are considered safe until proven harmful. Exactly. And who is going to prove them harmful? Well, the interesting thing is that over the past 20 years, there have been thousands of publications on BPA and on other plastic materials, the phthalates. There is just a huge amount of information. And European countries are banning these chemicals The European Union has banned a whole bunch of phthalates in various products. And the United States regulatory system is just systemically corrupt. And it's unable to respond to anything but industry pressure. And we have a flawed system where people assume that what they're consuming in the United States is safe. Whereas it turns out for food consumption, unlike the drug division at the FDA, that there is no free market testing for the majority of chemicals that you're consuming in your food. 
and there's no labeling of them. You have no idea what you're consuming when you're going to the supermarket and buying processed food. Mm-hmm, exactly. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Dr. Fred Vomsall. He is the Curator's Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Biological Sciences at the University of Missouri and co-editor of a brand new book titled Integrative Environmental Medicine, with chapters written by experts in their fields on different kinds of environmental contaminants, where we find them, how we can protect ourselves and our families, and policy action steps. I want to talk about the precautionary principle, because as we're talking about studies that are being done and finding harm with different compounds, one of the responses that I typically hear from the industry is, well, you know, they always have science that is competing, so it becomes a debate. It's a he said, she said kind of argument. And they also say that, well, we need more studies. There isn't enough research really to prove anything definitively. And one of the things that struck me about this book, Integrative Environmental Medicine, is that it is strongly in the realm of the precautionary principle and taking precautionary measures. Tell me what that means. Well, one of the best examples of that was on Meet the Press, where Tim Russert was talking to Christy Whitman at that time, head of the EPA, and she was saying, well, after 20 years of studying dioxins, we just don't know enough. We need more research. And Russert leans over and he picks up about a four-foot stack of articles. He says, there are 5,000 studies that you have reviewed on dioxins and all the terrible things they do. What the heck is it that you don't know that you need to know to make a regulatory decision? And she just sat there with her mouth open. I mean, she just had no comeback. Because the precautionary principle is that there is never such a thing as scientific certainty. And the actual FDA legal requirement is that there has to be a reasonable certainty of safety in order to declare a chemical safe. And that reasonable determination has to be made by scientific experts. And there is never 100% certainty in science. So you have to go on the best judgment. And the argument is not now between scientists. It's between industry, public relations firm, hired people who manufacture doubt and are paid a lot of money using tobacco industry tactics mm-hmm. to attack any science that threatens corporate profits. Yeah, and one of the arguments I also hear is that I'll frame this because in the area in which I hear it is when I'm having a conversation about genetically modified foods. And my concern with them is that the majority of them, despite all the promises that we hear about how they're, they're going to feed the world and so on, The truth is that the majority of genetically modified foods are engineered to be resistant to herbicides and an increasing number of herbicides, many of which are endocrine disruptors. And it's interesting, the industry response to this is, well, you know, we've been eating them for 20 years and everything is fine. And I don't know, maybe they're not reading the same scientific studies that I am or you are, but everything isn't fine, is it? So the important thing for people to know is that 
the average person is saying, well, people are living longer, so how can you say there's a problem? And then you look at the asthma and allergy statistics where the incidence has gone up dramatically over the time frame that the use of the chemicals we're talking about has dramatically increased. You look at diabetes, which between 2001 and 2009, according to the Center for Disease Control, type 1 and type 2 diabetes increased 30% in eight years in the United States. And this is incident levels. And obesity that in the United States in the 1980s, there were two or three states that had 15% of the population obese. There is no state in the United States that's less than about 20%. And there are states that are way above that. And, and two-thirds of the American population now is overweight or obese. Mm-hmm. And that's going to lead to further increases in diabetes. And for the first time, we are producing children that are likely to not live as long as our generation is Mm -hmm. going to live. And that's a reversal that is unprecedented. So the idea that there aren't health data out there indicating that we have serious problems with our health is just wrong. Right. I agree. I'm curious about the rates of autism also that seem to be growing exponentially and Children's disability rates are increasing. Children's cancer rates are increasing. But I'm curious about autism in particular and your knowledge of endocrine disruptors. Do you think endocrine disruptors may be playing a role in the rise that we're seeing? Well, we do know that a range of endocrine disrupting chemicals are targeting the developing brain and go across the placenta from the mother when the mother is exposed And this would be the great majority of pesticides, which are designed, many of them, to be neurotoxic. So they're neurotoxins. And the idea was that, well, they, you know, they're neurotoxins to insects, but insects are little and we don't need to worry about small exposures. And so part of what has happened over the past 20 years is that the idea that these chemicals have to be present at extremely high concentrations to be toxic is incredibly not true for particularly for fetuses and newborns. And so there's a huge disconnect between the old toxicological literature and 21st century science showing that outcomes such as inability to have normal social interactions have learning disabilities, have attention deficit disorder, and a whole range of neurological damage is increasing. And in animal studies, is directly shown to be caused by exposure to these chemicals. And in epidemiological studies, you have correlations between the maternal exposure to these chemicals and the outcomes in children. On the other hand, in human studies, they're never causal because nobody is going to expose a pregnant woman 
in a randomized case control experiment to chemicals that animal studies show cause this harm. And so you can't do causal experiments in humans. You have to accept that there is an animal literature showing this damage. There are human studies showing a relationship between exposure to a variety of chemicals and these kind of brain abnormalities. And be precautionary and say those chemicals really should be removed in terms of human exposure, Mm -hmm. particularly through our food chain. Exactly. You know, there's something that we do in dietetics. It's called the elimination diet. And the theory is that what we do is we remove what might be an offending food, and then we see if the person gets better, and then we, we add things back one at a time. And I feel that way about our environment as well. I would love to see us start taking things out of our environment to see if we don't get better. That would require an entirely different regulatory system. And we have a situation in the United States where the regulatory system, as minimal as it is, is being dismantled in favor of what is called cost-benefit analysis, cost to society and benefit to a handful of corporations that make these offending chemicals but who control the legislative process. Mm -hmm. And so, at least for the foreseeable future, there is no hope that there is going to be any kind of rational legislation that would lead to an improvement in public health and a reduction in the incredible disease burden that the American population is suffering right now. Yeah. Well, we do need policy change, and I don't want to leave our listeners without hope. We just have a minute left, and I want to let everyone know that Chapter 14, written by your co-editor, Ali Cohen, talks about proactive approaches to reduce environmental exposures. And these are things that we can do every day, certainly choosing organic food whenever possible. I know that for some families, It's either not available in their marketplaces or they think that it's too expensive. But if we weigh that against the cost of some of the illnesses that we're seeing in our society, I think it's probably a good investment. Every chapter in this book has recommendations for what you can do to reduce exposures and improve your health. And that's a fundamental core thing that we Haley Cohen and I had as a requirement, and her chapter in particular, as you said, has a huge amount of practical information, not only for physicians, but for the lay public to go and look at websites, smartphone apps, and be able to look at lists of products that are healthy for you and lists of products that are not healthy for you. It's all right there in this book. Well, Dr. Vamsal, I want to thank you so much for this book and for your time with me today. We have been speaking with Dr. Frederick Vamsal. He is the Curator's Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Biological Sciences at the University of Missouri and co-editor of Integrative Environmental Medicine. I think it should be on everyone's desktop. 
I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, Dr. Vamsal, for this incredibly important piece of work and for all of the years of your dedication to science. It's been a pleasure talking with you, Melinda.